0: My name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Isaiah 52, all right? Throughout history, people have made all kinds of predictions and promises about what would happen in the future, and not everybody has gotten it right. For instance, here's a couple of predictions. Horses are here to stay. The automobile is a fad. Not exactly right. Machine guns will make war impossible. And uh, I think it was Al Gore who predicted by 2018 that the northern northern polar ice cap will have melted by 75% and much of the eastern seaboard would be underwater. None of that took place either. But some predictions have come true. For instance, here's one from the 1660s. Pre-enlightenment, everyone, back in the days of superstition, that sort of thing, Robert Boyle made the prediction that one day transplantation would cure many diseases. Now, really, folks, that, that is amazing to think that somebody would, would predict that and think that even true back then. But he did, thought that transplantations would be a thing of the future. Another one would be uh, the uh, J- Jules Verne predicting our space travel one day. And here's a, a cool thing about his prediction. He predicted gravity before he would have had any way of knowing how the atmosphere, how out in space gravity is affected differently. And uh, so people have made some right predictions. But probably the greatest prediction I believe, anyway, and again, I'm coming at this from a follower of Jesus. I think the greatest prediction that has ever been made, predictively of, of, of the future, I, I would think would have to be what we're going to look at this morning. And that's the predictive picture that Isaiah the prophet is going to paint in the verses that Joe just read you a little while ago. Many people call this the greatest chapter in the Old Testament. And, and it's easy to see why, because, because it is such a clear picture Of what happened to the Lord Jesus and what surrounded his, the events uh, of his life and his death. Now, if you are back with us for the first time this morning, and there have been some. I'm glad to see you this morning, or if you happen to be joining us live stream. So this is, uh, what we're doing for these few weeks leading up to next Sunday is I've been trying to show you that the death of Jesus isn't an afterthought for God. In fact, it is the central core plan of God from the very beginning. And so what I want us to be able to see is that God has been giving us pictures of this Years, hundreds of years prior to Jesus coming. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at uh, Isaac and the ram in the thicket and how we said that was a picture of, of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then last week, it was the Passover. And we said it was another picture of the Lord Jesus. And I gave you two reasons in both cases. And the reason was that the, the pictures are so predictively true, but also that the New Testament turns and points us to those pictures and says, these are pictures of Christ. Christ. Well, the same thing is going to happen in, in this particular text of the Scripture this morning. There's two reasons why we know this is a picture of Jesus. One is the detail is so undeniable. It was written 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, but the picture is so specific to what would happen to the Lord Jesus. And the other is that uh, this is a passage in the New Testament that is referred to no less than nine times and applied to Jesus. All right. So this is, a, this is a passage that the New Testament writers also recognized to be a picture of the Lord Jesus. So we're going to look at that predictive picture this morning. And I, and I, as I was practicing this morning or going over my notes this morning, I realized that I, here's what I want to do. I want to look at the things that Isaiah is going to say about this servant. He starts off in verse 13 of chapter 52. Remember, there's no chapter divisions, and this is a wrong chapter division. If you were to start, in fact, chapter 53 should have started at chapter 52, verse 13, because it's the, same, it's the same thought. But as it starts off in verse 13, it says, See my servant. And so people have, throughout the years, the Jews, of course, wondered, who is the servant? Who's the servant of Isaiah 52, 13, Isaiah 53? Well, they said it was Israel for a long time. It's talking about the nation of Israel. Others came along later on and said, no, it's talking about Isaiah, the prophet. He was the servant in question in the text. But it became very, very obvious 700 years later when Jesus would fulfill this picture that the servant mentioned in chapter 52, verse 13 is none other than the one we worship, the Lord Jesus. So this is a picture of him. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to look at what Isaiah would say about this servant. And then I'm going to show you how Jesus fulfills this picture. Everybody get it? That's what we're going to do. And I've got a lot of points They're in your notes, on your, on your bulletin. And uh, so uh, I'm not going to number them. I'm going to lose my point if I, if I place, if I try to. So I'm just going to say the next, the next, the next, all right, until we get through all the different pictures, all the different things that Isaiah says about this coming servant. Again, 700 years before Jesus uh, steps onto our planet and into our world in uh, in a life like ours. So here we begin, here's the first part of the picture. This servant would be an exalted success. Verse 13, see my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, the Jews <coughs> the Jews I said thought that was talking about themselves. But it wasn't. And again, I'm I'm going to read back into the text here. I won't be doing that so much on the rest of them. But Jesus is is this servant. And he was successful. And you might ask, well, how was he successful? Because honestly, he only lived 33 years. He only ministered as an itinerant preacher for three years. And then they killed him. And they killed him in a terrible way. So how can he be viewed as successful? Well, I think Jesus was successful because of what the rest of this picture will paint. He was successful because he accomplished the mission for which he came. He was successful because... He redeemed us from death and he redeemed us from the curse of our own death and our own sinful nature. He cleansed us and he changed us. And in the text, as part of his success, the prophet Isaiah would say that he would be raised, he would be lifted, And he would be exalted. And when we get to the Lord Jesus, we find all three of those things to be true. He was raised on the third day after his death on Sunday morning. He was lifted up. The Bible says that 40 days later, he was lifted, he ascended into heaven. And Philippians chapter 2 tells us clearly that God has exalted him with a name that is above every name. I can't help but think about this. When I think about this passage, I can't help but think about uh, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is one of my favorite chapters when it comes to uh, Daniel's book. Because in chapter 7, we see Jesus ascending to heaven. The Son of Man ascends to heaven. And as he ascends to the Ancient of Days, the Bible says that the Ancient of Days receives him and gives him a name that is above every name. And makes him authority over all things. Makes him the king who will rule forever. Ever. Jesus has been exalted above all others. Number two, uh, Isaiah said he would have an appalling disfigurement, and just as many of you, many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being in isaiah 's predictive prophecy about this servant, something would happen to him, and he would be so severely physically affected that he wouldn't even appear almost human. He would just, he would be so disfigured. And we don't have any pictures of the day that Jesus was crucified. We don't know what he looked like. I appreciate Mel Gibson's attempt. If you watch The Passion of the Christ, you saw it. And, and Mel Gibson tried to present Jesus extremely disfigured. And of course, he probably was, or Isaiah, if we're going to take this and read it forward, he truly was disfigured because Isaiah's says that he was. You remember that he was flogged with a whip of nine tails with with pottery embedded in it so that when he was whipped, it would rip his skin apart. Can you imagine the the, uh, swelling that would have taken place because of what happened to Jesus? He had a a thorn of crowns put on his head. He was beaten in his face. His beard was pulled out. He would have looked tremendously deformed on the day of uh, his crucifixion. Number three, Isaiah said he would have, he would, this, this servant would have a universal impact. Verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Now, the word sprinkle there has to do with sacrificial purification. If you were here last week, you remember seeing the video of atonement by the Bible Project. Remember how it talked about the high priest would go and take a sacrificial animal, take the blood of that animal, and then he would sprinkle the blood, representing that animal dying for us and cleansing us of our sin. Well, here Isaiah picks up on that same terminology, and he says that he, this, this suffering person, he would sprinkle many nations. And kings would shut their mouth uh, over him. In other words, the, the blood of this sacrifice would cleanse not just one nation, but would have no boundaries, no national boundaries whatsoever. Jesus was a Jew crucified on a Roman cross, but he was also the Son of God. And as the Son of God, Jesus' sacrifice was not just for the Jews and not just even for the Romans, but it was for all of us in every nation around the world. You know, I grew up in Latin America. Jesus sprinkled my adopted nation with his blood. He sprinkled our nation here. He sprinkled every nation under the sun, making it potentially possible for us to be clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus. I love this part. Don't you love the next part? Kings of the world, the most powerful men in the world and women in the world are queens. They will shut their mouths because of him. Here's what that means. That means that they will submit to him. They will understand what he did and they will bow the knee to him. One of my favorite poems is one by James Allen Francis, and I mean, it's not, it's not, I don't know, maybe it's not all that great, but it just, I just love it. Let me read it to you. I've read it to you before. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, he never held an office, he never had a family or owned a home, he didn't go to college, he never lived in a big city, he never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 years old when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. And then this conclusion, 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched and all the navies that have ever sailed and all the parliaments that have ever sat and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected life of man on this earth as much as that one solidary life. See, kings will shut their mouth over him, and they have shut their mouth over Jesus for centuries as they've bowed the knee to him. The Jewish leadership killed them and thought they were done with him, but they could not keep him dead. To their astonishment, he would not stay dead. They buried him in a grave. He rallied to life, or he came to life. He rallied his disciples and gave them marching orders. The marching orders, by the way, which Dick so wonderfully shared with that story he gave us marching orders to go and take his name and make his fame known to the ends of the earth right along with Sidhu the earth we take his name as we go meanwhile his followers have done just that they have taken his name to the ends of the earth saying he is alive he conquered death we don't have to be afraid of death and not only that but he can change our lives now and make life better now I mean, he, he can, we, we can affect the world around us as we allow the Spirit of God just to make us like Jesus. We can change our world for the better all around us. and That's what Isaiah meant when he said they will see what had not been told them and they will understand what they had not heard. Why? Because the followers of this king would take his message to the ends of the earth. And that's us, everyone. That's us. Here's the next thing. His message would be disregarded. Chapter 53, who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's a good question. Who's believed the message? And the answer is, I'll tell you who believed the message. You know, the people who believed the message in Jesus' day, they were the people who were already loving God and already following after God. They were the people whose faith was already in the God of Israel. They, They knew Jesus. They recognized him because they knew the Father. But the leadership of Israel, they did not Many who were not following God, they did not recognize Jesus. He was not the Messiah they wanted. He was not the king that they were expecting. And so they rejected him. They would eventually kill him. They were the ones who disregarded his message. His background, here's the next one, it was ordinary. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. They judged him insignificant. They judged him as, as not anybody special. He wasn't Roman. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. Years later, his critics would dismiss him like this and they would say, man, isn't this just the carpenter's son? Isn't this just the blue-collar worker from up in Nazareth? Who, who is he? The phrase tender shoot means that he was like a plant with no, pl- no, uh, no power at all. Just to, You know, my trees are budding now, and they got little shoots on them. And, you know, if you go over to them right now, you can just take your thumb and just pluck them off because just, there's, just, there's nothing to them, right? There's just a little shoot. That's what it means. He had no power. He was like a root out of the dry ground where it's arid, where there's no water. He wasn't going to become big or, or grow substantially. He was nothing. That's what they thought. He wasn't born to royalty. He wasn't blue blood. He wasn't, he wasn't anybody that we should consider him. Do you remember when Israel wanted a king when they weren't supposed to have a king? Remember that? And you remember the first guy they chose? They chose Saul, right? Does anybody remember why they chose Saul? Because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was tall and he was handsome. Jesus wasn't any of that. And I don't mean to be disrespectful. I mean, what is it to being handsome anyway, right? Jesus... Wouldn't know anything about that, uh, you know. <laughs> Mike over here, he'd know all about that. But, but so, uh, but Jesus, Jesus wasn't this awesome-looking, tall guy that everybody just rallied rallied to him because of his physique. I mean, he was just ordinary, average. Probably darker-skinned than mine, but probably maybe looked probably brown eyes, not blue eyes like mine. But he just looked like all of us just an average guy. But there was nothing average about him at all. Next it says Isaiah said he'd be personally rejected. Remember this is written 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene. He was personally rejected. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. It's not just that they rejected Jesus' message, they rejected Jesus himself as a person. They won't have anything to do with him. And I've thought about that a lot this week. Why would they reject this man who was known for his countless kindnesses to people? Why would they reject this guy who just, I mean, he healed people? I mean, he, he loved the poor and those who were down and out. And that was all that was undeniable. Why would they not value and treasure him? Well, I've come up with two reasons. One is I think maybe a lot of it was conviction. You ever, ever been with someone who's, who's good and they're actually choosing things you're not choosing that are better than you and your life gets under conviction? And I'll tell you what, when your life is under conviction, everyone, you have one or two choices. You know what they are? Here's the first choice. You can repent and say, man, I'm going to rise to that level. Or you can try to tear them down to your level. And it's unfortunate that without Jesus, our, our, I think our natural broken tendency is to want to rip them down rather than build myself up, right? But, but another, another reason maybe because Jesus didn't pull any punches. Remember that? Remember the self-righteous arrogance of religious people? Jesus had no toleration for it, and he would call people out on it. I mean, if he was here today, probably a lot of us might not like him because he'd be putting his finger in our face and talking about our selfishness and talking about our self-righteousness and the fact that we judge ourselves better to be than others. Maybe that's it. But they despised him. They didn't value him. Not just his message. They didn't value him. As a, as a person, much less as Messiah. Here's the next one. His life would be laden with suffering. I tell you, this one, I hope you really just tune in. I mean, if you haven't been tuned in, tune in right now, okay? This suffering servant, it's called the suffering servant, because his life would be laden with suffering. Look at verse 3. I'm going to read it again, verse 3, but because of the other part. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. Yet he himself bore our sickness and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. The Bible tells us, that the Bible does not tell us, excuse me, the Bible does not tell us that Jesus was ever sick or that he suffered from any kind of ailment. And honestly, I don't think he did. I imagine he was healthy the whole time he was here. So... If he wasn't sick, what, what does this mean? If he didn't suffer from ailments or some kind of debilitation of some sort, what, how did he suffer? Well, this is what I think it means. I think it means that Jesus experienced our suffering. He felt our suffering with us, if you would, and, uh, and for us. Isaiah said that he would carry our sufferings Now listen carefully People ask me this question a lot They've probably asked you this question Maybe it's because I'm a pastor They ask it to me But I get this question a lot If God is all powerful and God is all good Why is there suffering in this world? Why am I suffering? Why has it not gone the way I wanted? Why hasn't God answered my prayer? Why does this bad thing happen to me? And if I don't get asked it, I think most of us at some point in our life, we think about it. And here's my answer. All right, listen. Here's my answer. I don't have a clue. I don't know why God has allowed suffering in our world, why he created a world with the potential for suffering. I mean, I have some thoughts on that. But even as I practiced them this morning, the Lord said, don't say that because you don't know if that's true or not. That's just my conjecture. But this I do know. I do not know why God has allowed suffering in this world, but this I do know. God chose to become one of us creatures, just like us. And then he entered in our suffering. And Isaiah, God tells us through Isaiah, 700 years before it would be true of Jesus, Jesus would, Jesus would suffer like us. He would hurt like us. Why? I don't know. But I do know that God didn't just say, well, I'm going to make you guys suffer, and you guys are going to suffer, but I'm going to just sit in my royal heaven and not suffer. No, he entered into our suffering, and he walked with us in our suffering, and he experienced it with us. So the Bible says that Jesus wept. I mean, is that just a show? Is Jesus just really crying because he just wants us to, oh, look, I'm really commiserating with you guys. Or is Jesus weeping because there is sorrow in his heart over the sorrow that he feels in the life of the people that he loves? And I suggest it's the second one. That he's weeping because he's feeling our sorrow. He's walking with us in it. And so when he sees people hungry and the disciples say, send them away, he says, I can't. I'm concerned with them. You feed them. Or when he sees people that are just out there and they, they um, he says they're like a shepherd, or they're like sheep without a shepherd, nobody to care for them, nobody to help them. It says he felt, he was moved in his inwards. He, he felt compassion in his heart for them. Why? Because he suffered alongside of us. He felt that. On, on the way to death, Jesus suffered too. He didn't suffer from sickness or ailments. But he experienced the suffering of rejection. He experienced the suffering of abandonment from his friends. He experienced physical torture. The Jews thought that, and here, go back to the verse. Look at the last line of the verse. Isaiah said, we truly regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. We thought this was because God disapproved of him. But we know better. This is the son of God. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son whom I have loved. He wasn't stricken or struck down or suffered for his sake or because God was against him. He was suffering for our sake. Which brings us to the next thing that Isaiah said. He would take our punishment. Verse 5. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Isaiah said of the, of the servant he would be pierced and crushed. Jesus was pierced, literally, with a spear. He was crushed, literally his lungs were crushed on the cross, which took his life We all know that. I tell you that all the time. Jesus didn't die of blood loss. He died of asphyxiation, which I think is a terribly cruel way to die, to not be able to breathe. Upon him was the punishment, our punishment. He was beaten with a whip. By his wounds, his body was broken to the point that his body died. He died. He was broken for us. You know, we often think of the punishment of Jesus, that torture that he bore on the cross, as the uh, punishment Jesus bore for us. But really, it wasn't the torture on the cross. It was the death on the cross that Jesus bore for us. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus bore our death. He suffered unto death, but his death was not in vain. His death was not in vain. The opening line is, see, my servant will be successful. He was successful when he bore our sin on the cross and died for us. He was successful. He redeemed our death. Verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. He was successful. He bore our punishment. Look at what we have because of Jesus. We have life. We have eternal redemption bought back from our sin. And herein lies his success. Look at the verse. We have peace with God. You see that? He said, punishment for our peace was on him. And the word peace there, it, it simply means things like wholeness and health and, and fullness, the absence of war and safety. In a messed up world, Jesus is our peace. He's our peace. Listen, he's our peace because of what I read to us at the very beginning of what's coming. On the mountain of God, when Jesus comes again, there will be a world unlike the one we live in now. Okay, But I tell you what, in this broken world, Jesus is my peace. I mean, he gives me peace when everything around me is falling apart and hurting and broken. If I look to him, I don't always do a good job of this and neither do you. But if we look to him, he's our peace. And he gives us peace that surpasses anything that makes any sense to anybody else. How can you have peace in the middle of that? Because he's our peace and he purchased it for us. We are healed. You see that? We are healed, it says in the text. It says, the punishment of our peace is on him. We are healed by his wounds. I mean, there's an ultimate healing coming through the Lord Jesus, right? In the day when his kingdom is established on earth and all are resurrected to eternal life, never to die again. There's a perfect healing in that. But I want to I say that God is healing me now. He's healing me of my guilt and my shame, and my hatred and, and my doubt, he's healing me of all of that if I'll let him. Again, I mean, it's, it's not automatic, everyone. I mean, this is, this is the neat thing. This is the, what's the word I'm looking for? This, this is the, I don't know what you call it, the, the double edged sword part of the gospel, right? God is doing this, but, but I also must, I have a responsibility to enter in that. You know, it's, it's, it's work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's because God's at work at you, in you. So God is doing this, but also I'm involved in the process of, of letting him heal me and change me. And I tell you what, if you harden your heart to what God is doing in your life, and, 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 you, and you look on, we need to renew our minds. Well, I'm off notes here. We need to renew our minds and start thinking the way God wants us to think. That's what he says, renew your mind. And as we renew our mind, as we start to think the way God wants us to think, and even in these hurtful, suffering situations, as I think that way, he changes my life. He heals me. Here's the next one. He would take take our punishment, and then this is the next one. He would take my punishment. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, I'm just... I'm just getting, Isaiah is just getting specific. Verse 6, we all went astray like sheep. We all went astray. We all have turned to our own way. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And I want to suggest to you, if you don't see it, it just jumped out of the text at me this week. Isaiah 53, 6 is Romans 3, 23 in the New Testament. What is Romans 3, 23? Most of us know it, right? We learned it as a young Christian. What is it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, that's Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us have sinned. We've all gone astray. We've all missed the mark. We've all turned to our own way. The verse begins with, we all and ends in all. It's all about, it's about me. Jesus bore Jimmy's death and Jimmy's sin and Jimmy's rebellion and Jimmy's failures. I, I, I'm, I'm, Jesus died for me. It's about me, and it's about you. Listen, as long as you see Jesus as just dying for the group, you've missed something. As long as you kind of just make it a group thing, Jesus died for, for those of us that would trust him, and that is very true. He died for the people who would put their faith. He died for all mankind, but his death is effective for all those who put their faith in him. As long as you're just looking at this in a group sort of way, you're, you're, you've, just, you've lost what you need to see, or you've never found it. Jesus died for you Earl with your name on it, right? Jesus died for every one. You need to put you need to personalize it now. If you've never personalized it, personalize it. Young people, listen. Jesus died for you by name, every one of you. He died for us personally. Here's the next one. He would do all this silently verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. You know, when people accuse us, you know what we want to do in our human nature? I won't even say it's necessarily a sinful nature, but just in our humanity. You know what we want to do when people accuse us and they accuse us wrongly? What do we want to do? got to defend myself, right? I got to show you why you're wrong and what you're saying about me. And we do so vigorously. And maybe we even do so at the level that they're doing it. So when they're stooping to this level to accuse us of false things, we turn around and do the same thing. Jesus did not do that. Hundreds of years, 700 years before Jesus walked onto our planet and into our history physically, like one of us, Hundreds of years before then, it said that he would not open his mouth, but would remain silent. In his trials, Matthew 26, 63, Jesus kept silent. Matthew 27, 12, he did not answer. Mark 14, but he kept silent, did not answer. Mark 15, but Jesus made no further answer. Luke 23, but he answered him nothing. John 19, but Jesus gave him no answer. And I realize that I'm dipping into the same story a couple of times there. But Jesus had three trials before Caiaphas, Herod, and Pilate. Four if you count two before Pilate. And every one of the trials it says the same thing. He, he did not defend himself. He spoke to Caiaphas. He spoke to Pilate. I don't even think there's any, any recording speaking to Herod whatsoever. He, I don't think he opened his mouth to Herod. But he did not defend himself. He did not try to argue that they were wrong in what they were saying about him. And um, Peter says of Jesus, he did not retaliate. He didn't return insult for insult. So when they scourged him, he, he didn't, didn't do anything in return. When the soldiers put the crown of thorns on his head, I'd be cursing them and spitting them and cussing at them. In my, in my old nature, that's what I'd want to do. But he did none of that. When they drove the nails, he didn't threaten them. Oh man, I'm going to get you. I'm the Lord of glory. You're going to have to stand before me one day. But he didn't say any of that. When the bystanders by- and bypassers, when he was taking the cross, they spat on him and said, but he didn't spit back. When they swore at him, there's no record that he swore back. Peter says he did not retaliate. Listen, this is, if Jesus is the one I follow, then I need to learn to be like that, don't I? I need to be someone who doesn't retaliate tit for tat. if, if, If you treat me wrong, I don't need to treat you wrong. What do I need to do with you? What do I need to do with you? Forgive them. What else? Love them, right? Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you and despitefully use you. I mean, that's King Jesus. So either follow him or don't follow him, but that's the kind of stuff he calls us to. And that's the kind of stuff that he modeled here for us, but you got it, right? He uh, he would do everything he did that day silently and that's what happened to Jesus 700 years later. His trial would be an injustice verse 8. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate for he was cut off from the land of the living he was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was taken away in oppression and judgment but not righteous judgment. Jesus taken away, you know, there's so much about people talk about injustice in our culture, and our society today, and, and I'm sure there are a lot of uh, injustices. We definitely see them, but boy, you talk about an injustice. What happened to Jesus was an injustice. His trials were, were a travesty of justice. If you remember, you've probably heard this before, maybe you've heard it. maybe you haven't, but his Jewish trials, for instance, they were just, they were so contrary to what the law demanded. There was not supposed to be a trial in the middle of the night. Jesus was supposed to have somebody defending him. He had, was in the middle of the night, nobody defending him. Of the major personalities that, that were involved in Jesus' trials, only Pilate showed the least bit concern for Jesus. Remember what Pilate said on three different occasions? I find no guilt in him. And yet at the end of the day, he crucified him because he had to placate the people that he was afraid of. Isaiah foretold a picture when the servant would be cut off from the land of the living. He foresaw that this servant, whoever he was talking about, he didn't know, 700 years earlier we know, is Jesus, that he would be cut off from the land of the living. He would die. And Jesus did die. And he died a cruel death. And he died a very hard death. You know, I've wondered about this an awful lot. You know, why couldn't Jesus have just died in his sleep? Wages of sin is death, right? Jesus could have entered into our death for us by simply dying in his sleep. Or he could have lived at a different day when it was they could have lethally injected him and he could have just gone off to sleep. Why such a cruel and hard death? I, I don't have an answer to that. I really don't. Maybe it's because Jesus is... Suffering the worst death that any of us could suffer as well. Maybe that's why he had to suffer such a hard and cruel death. But, but, but notice what Isaiah said about his death. You see it in the text? He was cut off from the land of, living, of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He would die for our rebellion. He would die for us. And this is what the Apostle Paul and everybody in the New Testament understood and what you need to understand if you haven't understood it already. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while I was yet in rebellion against God, while I have been a sinner my whole adult, my whole conscious adult life, since I knew right from wrong, Jesus died for me. And he didn't die for me until once I got it right, right? He didn't die for me. He said, okay, Jimmy, get it right. And then, hey, then, then it's good to go. You're good to go. It's when I'm in the middle of all of that and I recognize my rebellion and I recognize where I am and who I am. And when I recognize that and I turn to him, yeah. he died for me when I was in that state. Not, not a state of getting it right, but in a state of, of rebellion against him. And that, beloved, is the bedrock of our Christian faith. That's, that's why we're here to worship today, because we believe Jesus died for us. We believe Jesus, in our rebellion, took our death so that we would one day could live again and live again with him forever. He died for you. And then the last thing this morning, and we're going we're to stop in the, in the progression, uh, but there's more to it. If you come back Friday night, we'll finish this. But his grave was an incongruity, verse 9. Verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. You know, how could Jesus have been assigned a grave with the wicked, but be with the rich man in his death? You know, somebody has suggested, I bet Isaiah wondered about that, you know. I bet he wondered how that could be because the truth is wicked people and rich people in that, in Isaiah's day, most likely for sure, and, and in Jesus' day for sure, you know, they, they just, you know, wicked people were thrown in unmarked graves. They were not celebrated. Rich people, on the other hand, had the nicest of tombs, and they were most, most likely lauded over because they were rich, and that meant God was blessing them, etc. How could this be true? Well, it was like this. Jesus was killed, murdered for us, died for us, um, as a common criminal and he was crucified and you know what they did with crucified people? They didn't give him a burial according to history they didn't give him a burial they took him off the cross and they took him down to the valley of Henan in Gehenna And they threw their bodies in there to be eaten by the maggots and to be eaten by the birds and other animals. And they were not given a burial. And what would be left would be burned in the fires of Gehenna. That was what was, Jesus was, I'm assuming that's what happened to the other two men beside Jesus. And that was Jesus' lot, right? He was assigned the grave of the wicked, but he was with the rich man in in the end. And, of course, we know the story. Jesus was taken down from the cross, and a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, who by faith believed in Jesus, took his body and gave him his tomb, a tomb that he'd bought for himself that had never been used, hewn out of rock. And Jesus was buried by a rich man, you know, after his, after his death. 700 years in a thing that didn't make sense. We find to be true, 700 years later, Jesus was assigned the grave of a wicked man, but he was with a rich man in his death, and he was given a rich man's tomb. And all this happened, though Jesus was innocent. Look back at the verse one more time. Because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Jesus never done any violence, committed no sins, and he had never lied. No deceit was found in his mouth. In 1875, Philip Bliss wrote a hymn based on Isaiah 53. It was called Hallelujah, What a Savior. I knew it so well. Couldn't find it in the Baptist hymnal. Couldn't figure that out. How can I know a hymn so well and it not be in the Baptist hymnal? Well, it is isn't the Baptist hymnal. Under another name, Man of Sorrows. <laughs> so it took a while to figure that out. But uh, Bliss, Philip Bliss wrote that song. And according to Ira Sankey, who was the musician for D.L. Moody, Bliss went to a, um, a jail, and he preached on Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows. And, and then after he had finished preaching, he sang this song to them. And Ira Sankey said that what happened was the Spirit of God fell on that prison, and many, many people, many, many uh, convicts would later say they came to Christ that day when, uh, when Bliss was teaching on this passage and then sang this hymn. I want to read the words to you. It's based on Isaiah 53. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah! What a Savior! Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah! What a Savior! When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew his song we'll sing. Hallelujah! What a Savior! When He comes and we wait for Him, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew His song we'll sing, and forever and ever we'll sing it, Hallelujah! What a Savior! How do you received? How do you receive this morning this gift of Jesus? How do you receive Him? It's not hard. It's not by your efforts. It's not by your managing to bring your life in line with God's moral desires. It's that when by faith you recognize, boy, I'm a rebellious sinner who deserves to die, and yet Jesus bore my death for me. God himself entered into our life to, to bear your death. And if you can believe, then right now you can receive him. You can open your heart And you can say, Lord Jesus, I'm coming to you now. I'm running to you now. Don't don't say, I'm going to come to you later. Listen, if God is stirring in your heart this morning, this is the morning to run to Jesus. This is the time to come to Jesus and to receive him as this incredible suffering servant who served his creatures, who served us. Remember, the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. The iniquity of Jimmy on him. Your iniquity, your sin, your failures, your, your selfishness, he's, he's laid it all on him and Jesus bore it for you. And if you are willing this morning, right now, in this room or out in live stream world, you can receive the Lord Jesus. Just open your heart. That's all you got to do. You say, I don't get it. Oh, it's not hard. Just open your heart. Just believe. Hey, Lord Jesus, come in and be my Savior. Run to the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at BaconsCastle.com. Also, check out our website at BaconsCastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.